Today, today marks the beginning of a three or four week period for us as a church um, where we are going to be doing something that we have not embarked on together in nearly um, 30 years. Um, and in order to do that, I, I, I want to teach through a series called Great Expectations. And it's a series uh, on expectations, uh, on what our expectations should be of God, what our expectations should be of each other, what our expectations uh, that God has placed on us. What are the expectations for us? So now, if you're, if you're not a Mendham Hills person and you're visiting this morning, I think you're going to learn some stuff about expectations in your own life and happiness and significance. So I think that there's something here for you. But if you're part of our church, I think there's an even bigger story here about what God is up to uh, in our church. And, and that's going to culminate in tonight's meeting. You really need to be at tonight's meeting at 6 o'clock. So... When that commences at 6, we are going to start, for the first time in somewhere between 25 and 30 years, in a generation and a half, really. Something new for almost all of us in this room. There's only a few people that were here when it happened last time. We are going to, to, to start a building campaign, something that we haven't done in a long time. Now, for, for nearly 30 years, hundreds, and as I rethought it, really thousands of people have come through those two doors into this building and worshipped and celebrated, communed, and many people have found God in this place, in this building. 30 years ago, with a group of people probably smaller than are in the room this morning, much smaller than the amount gathered in our two services, they believed, this group of people believed that God was up to something, that he might be interested in this community of men in Manchester. So they wanted to put an evangelical church, one that would reach out and not just be solely focused on himself, and build it into this community to make God real to the community. And order, in order to do that, they devoted themselves to something significant. I'm going I'm to interview a few of these people for you next week. Something greater than themselves or their individual welfare. Something sacrificial. Something life-changing. For them, certainly. But I have to tell you the truth. What they devoted themselves to 30 years ago in building this place, you know what it was like, who it was life-changing for? Me. Because 20-some years ago, I walked through those front doors. And I sat in the back, kind of right where Lexi's sitting right now. I remember that first day I walked in here. And uh, I had never been to a church like this. I'd got kind of grown up in kind of a mainline church, and when people sang, they sang, sang, sang like it was a funeral parlor, you know? And I remember sitting, coming in here, going, holy smokes, what is going on in this place? Like, I could just feel the presence of God. And, and what those people, their sacrifice to build this wonderful place has forever impacted my soul. Their sacrifice in this place has forever impacted my soul my family, my kids, my daughter's up at Lake Champion texting me how great God is. Their destinies in this life and eternally have been changed because of this place. And that groups, that, that, that groups obedience to God. And see, that's just it tonight. These upcoming weeks, this series, and you know, this is about this, this concept that we want to take on. It's not about building. Okay, please, make, the church is not a building, and it's not about building. This is about a force, which I'm going to explain to you today, a very real force, a force so powerful that the world, to this day, and I could, I, I could teach on this forever, it's a force so powerful that the world has never seen such a force. That force is the church of Jesus Christ, which has for 
millennia been transforming the world. When it's functioning as it should be, man, when the church is functioning as, as it should be, there is nothing more beautiful, there is nothing more powerful, there is nothing more life-changing, life-saving, life-altering than the church of Jesus Christ. The building isn't, isn't the important thing. The building is a tool. It's something that the church has, but the building is not the end. The building might be a means to an end, but it's not the end in its own. This isn't about building a building. It's about joining with God and what he's doing in our community, in Chester and Mendham and Long Valley and Randolph and all those areas in this town. Now, two weeks ago, if you are here, we celebrated Easter in this room, and it was a great Sunday, man. We sang and we worshiped. An incredible day. People come up to me and go, oh, that was the, the best service I've ever been in. One guy said to me, we should do that same service for 50 straight years and not change a thing. Just loved it, right? And Steve came up and talked about this a little bit last week. But see, here's the deal. For, for, if you believe, if you believe, Easter, it's, even in the book itself, right? If I took the Bible up, you realize Easter's not the end of the story. In fact, on Channel 4 right now, or I guess we don't call them Channel 4 anymore, on NBC, um, on NBC, they're doing this um, whole follow-up series, right, on, on the early church. I think it's called AD, right? Is that it? And so, because Jesus' resurrection is not the end of the story. It wasn't the end of the story in the Bible, and it's not the end of the story now. We're not a people who gather immediately to celebrate a historic event. The, the resurrection isn't just a historic event. It's a current issue. God, in very real and tangible ways... You, if we get this, we get everything. God, in very real, tangible ways, is still bringing dead people back to life. God is still taking people dead in their sins, dead in their trespasses, dead in their minds and their souls, dead in lost hopes and broken promises and shattered families. God is still bringing dead people back to life. And he's doing it the way he always has. How does God rescue dead people? Through his church. That's what he's doing. You see, we, we have convoluted ideas as to what God is doing. You ever wonder, like, what does one occupy himself with when you're God? I mean, when you have eternity, that's a lot of time on your hands. What do you do? And I think a lot of the times, you know, we have this, this picture of God kind of floating on a cloud, leaning back, eating some grapes or something, and, you know, there's some heart music playing in the background. But that is not what God is doing. God has been doing the same thing since he created man. Since the fall, since the separation from God for man, God has been about one work. Redeeming, restoring, and renewing lives. You see it right in Genesis, right at the beginning of the fall. You, say, you see that God says, I'll be bringing these people back. God is still calling people to himself. He's still the shepherd seeking the wayward sheep. He's doing it, and he's doing it through his church. Now, this very same Jesus, this Jesus whose resurrection we celebrated two weeks ago, before he left, he, he got together with his disciples, and he, he asked them a question. Peter was there. You remember Peter, right? And Peter, he's like the impulsive one. He's the impetuous one. He's the one that's always given to thoughts of grandeur. You remember when he sees Jesus, he jumps out of the boat, and he runs on water for a little while. But, you know, his faith is a little bit weak, so he sinks. And you remember Peter at the Last Supper? Oh, Jesus, I'll never deny you. Don't worry about me, Jesus. I've got your back. And, you know, over the next couple hours, he denies Jesus three times. Peter, he's in that group, and, and Jesus is standing with the disciples, and, 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 and he's trying to culminate his ministry. So he asks them a question. He says to them, who do people say I am? That's a great question. Go out to the green of Morristown and ask that question and get some interesting answers, right? Here's what the scripture says. 
It says the disciples said, well, some say, Jesus, that you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah, a prophet, right? That's what we'd get on the green. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he said to them. And Jesus stopped and he looked at him and he said, who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I'll tell you, you, Peter, you impulsive one, you impetuous one, you one of mediocre faith, you one of denial, on you, on this rock, which which theologians really think it might not have been Peter Jesus was talking about, but it was his confession, his testimony, on your confession that Christ is Lord, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to use you and your confession, and I'm going to build my church on it. See, what God is up to this morning is the same thing he's always up to. God's building his church. He's not eating grapes. He's building his church. He's, 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 he's constructing, he's, he's moving a redemptive force, an unstoppable force, one that is so incredibly powerful that he says the gates of hell can't stop it. Now, here's the problem. For so many years, I've told you this before, but for so many years, I completely misunderstood this verse. And, and if you misunderstand this verse, you misunderstand church. Your whole concept of church gets convoluted. When I read it or heard it, I read the church as being this very strong place, as a very well-fortressed bunker, this place where you could come to and you wouldn't have to worry because there's no way the gates of hell could ever overpower the church of Jesus Christ. That's what I thought it meant. It's not what it means. See, when you read it that way, when you see church is the place that the gates of hell can't overcome, it leads you to making church a certain way. The church becomes the safe place. It becomes the place where, where you retreat to get away. Why do we call Christian um, things retreats? Ralph, <laughs> who runs a retreat center. Shouldn't Christian like things be forwards, not retreats? See, but we, we've placed the church, we've, we've made the church be this, this place of retreat where we put up walls to keep out all the bad things. We keep those bad things, those, those enemy things outside, and we're going to do all the good things in here. It becomes a place where we can isolate ourselves off from. And, you know, when we do that, we make ourselves, we create our own little safe place. It's like the foxhole. Bad out there. Oh, man, the, the gates of hell are trying to get me. I'm going to come into the church, and the church will protect me. And when we do that, you know, we start to create these little subcultures. You know how it goes. And next thing you know, we have our own, like, way of, we have our own things that we say. You know, I know the historic thing on Easter morning is um, somebody says, he is risen. And then somebody else says, he is risen indeed. And, like, I push back against that so much. I understand it's ancient and good. But I, I never use the word indeed in real life. You know, so I always feel weird when I'm going, indeed. Like, it seems right. But we start our own, like, we have our own names for things, right? We don't hang out. We fellowship. Right? And so we build a whole culture around us because bad out there, good in here, high walls, strong walls, nothing gets in. So, you know, we have the music out there. That's not bad. We'll create our own Christian music. Movies out there, they're bad. We'll create our own Christian movies. Schools out there, schools are bad. We'll create our own Christian schools. 
right? It just starts one thing, starts to build on another. Uh, Christian bookstores and Christian jewelry. And I swear this is true. A friend of mine last year gave me a case of Christian bubble gum. <laughs> swear to you, right? A case of it. And I had it in my car, and my sister one day said, and, you know, my sister doesn't go to church every week or anything, and she said, do you have any gum? And I kind of sheepishly said, yeah. And uh, I said, it's in the glove compartment. She opened the glove compartment, and she takes it out, and she's like, you got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, this is what we do. Like, you know, we, we need our own gum. This is, you know, we're going to take the world for Christ with the gum. Um, and, and so this is what the church becomes, in a sense. It, 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 we get this verse wrong because we, in a sense, instead of going forward, we retreat to the church because there's a more powerful enemy coming against us, and the church winds up becoming a place where we're so concerned. Now think about how, what happens in the church. So when you build up these walls and you create this subculture, well, you know, you got to manage this thing somehow, so we start putting some rules in place. And, you know, there's certain things, once you get in the church, you know, see, now, I, nobody explained these rules to me, so when I first started, I got myself in a lot of trouble, and I still do up here sometimes, because there are certain things that you can say and you can't say in the church. There are certain things you, you can wear and you can't wear to church. Nobody tells you exactly what that is, right? But, you know, so once the rules are in place and some of them are unwritten, well, then somebody breaks them. Well, then, you know, well, little boy, mm, did you see the way his daughter came to church today? Did you see what she was wearing? I saw that girl. I saw that guy out last night at the football game. You know, I think I saw him drinking a beer. So we start creating these rules. And then people start to get afraid. Well, maybe the bad stuff's getting in the church. And so, so what do we do? Then we start judging one another. I don't know if you're keeping the rules right. I saw you eating a lifesaver and not like the Christian mint. <laughs> you know where that money's going? Right? And I say it's, it's funny because we know we do it. The world is a bad place. We're going to create a good place and we're going to wall ourselves off so that bad people can't hurt us anymore. Here's what I would tell you, I think based on what the scripture would teach, there is nothing more putrid, nothing more distasteful to Jesus than when the church of Jesus Christ becomes a retreat center. The church was never meant to be, the church is not a building, okay, the church is a called out people, was never meant to be a people in retreat, this is the kind of church that, that Jesus later on in Revelation would say, it makes him sick, he's going to spew it out of his mouth. Now the right reading, see here's what I didn't get. Here's the right reading of what Jesus' words to Peter were. Peter, he says, Peter, the world has been taken over by a powerful force that has locked it away. The force is stolen from people, their lives and their destinies and their hopes and their dreams. It has captured their children. It has broken their families. It has destroyed love. It has promoted misery. Its highest ends is death. It's taken my world and my people captive, and it has set them behind some pretty powerful gates, Peter. But Peter, I am coming, and I am going to build something, starting with you. From this day forward, on your confession, starting with that confession, I am going to build something, a force like the world has never seen before. 
It will restore and heal and bring life back. It won't do it by force. It'll do it through love. It will set, it, it, it will help blind men to see. It will help lame men to walk. It will be a place where dead men still come back to life. You see, the resurrection isn't just a historical thing. God is still bringing people back to life. And he brought me back to life in that seat right back there. Peter, it's going to be so powerful, he says. It's going to be so powerful that even the gates of hell won't be able to stand against it. The gates of hell were defensive for the ground that had already been lost. Hell's merely trying to maintain its gains. The church is supposed to be this powerful agent that's going out, pushing into it, not making mints. The poor mint guy. This is what God is up to. You want to know what God is up to? Right now? God right now is building his church because it's the agent through which and by which he is going to redeem and restore all creation. That's what God's doing. And when we get it right, man, when we join him in this, in what he's doing in this world, when we get into the uh, out of retreat and into the pushing forward, when the church becomes the church again, that's when you start to see crazy things. That's when you start to see crazy Bible stories happen. I'll give you one. I didn't even tell in the first service, but a couple of years ago, a bunch of friends and, and I, when we were doing this ministry thing at night, and, and, and on Christmas Eve, and we, uh, we, we said we were going to rent a church in Morristown, and we went to the homeless shelters for a couple of weeks leading up to it, invited all these homeless folks to come out. I might have told you this story before, but to me, it's just it's so resonant. And so on Christmas Eve, we got there that night. We were going to serve a four-course dinner, and it was, all, it was just incredible. And we got there. It was a line down the street of people, homeless folks, waiting to get in on Christmas Eve. And so... There was a couple hundred people there, and we ran out of food. And literally, the doors blew open just as we ran out of food, and some people walked in carrying food. And he goes, we heard what you're doing. We own this restaurant down the street. We wanted to come and bring you food. Now, that stuff doesn't just happen. But when you start to join God in his redemptive work, when the church becomes the church, this is when you can start to expect all these crazy things to start happening. This is what God is doing. This is what he's, he's, he's about. But instead, sometimes the church, you know, we, we can be very defeatist. Well, you know, all those people out there, they're bad people. We should probably just worry about ourselves. You know, here in the Northeast, it's a pretty dead spiritual place. Those people out there, you know, they're not really interested in God. I mean, really, let's just kind of grind out our lives here, and we'll, keep, we'll, we'll create a nice holy huddle in here. You know, the purpose of a huddle is to gather to run a play, right? We often huddle, and then we, we compare the size of our huddles to others' huddles, right? How's your huddle? My huddle's good. Nobody ever runs a play. And so, so when the church starts getting like that and starts saying, well, God's not going to do, God's really not going to do anything here. God's not, gonna, God's not really going to do anything incredible here. God's not really going to show up with food on a Christmas Eve night for us here. God, God's not really going to transform Mendham or Chester or my family or my neighbor. Then what I would tell you is when we lower the expectations for what God is doing, especially when it comes to, to his building of his church, when we lower his ex, our expectations of him, guess what you get? You get what you expected. Because expectations are a really funny thing. We talked about this once last year. All of us, right, in this kind of crazy world, we're all pursuing happy. I just want to be happy. I just want my kids to be happy. And so there's a lot of people right now studying the science of being happy. Why are they studying the science of being happy? Because if you can figure it out, you're going to make a lot of money. Because everybody wants to be happy. 
If you go home today and you type into your Google bar, the secret of happiness, you will see one word starts to pop up because all of the sociologists, all of the scientists, they're all starting to coalesce around one theory to what they are now calling the key to happiness. You know what it is? Lower your expectations. Lower your expectations. The reason you're so unhappy is you have unrealistic expectations. Now, there's some truth to this. There is some truth to this. Um, parenting advice. I heard a great study on the Today Show this week. They said in the 50s, they asked kids a question, a big study. How many of these kids in the room felt that they were special? And 12% of the kids answered yes, they thought they were special in the 50s. They did the study again recently, and like 85% of the kids said, oh yeah, I'm special, right? And because as parents, what we've done is done, uh, done this great job of telling your, our kids, you can do any, oh, you're so special, you're so wonderful. And that's not a bad thing, okay? But sometimes we can build up for them unrealistic expectations. My son, um, he had a really good, I, I don't know when we started calling high school a career, but he had a really good high school career, okay? And uh, I don't say this to brag, but I say it to set the story up, all right? He was captain of the wrestling team. He was captain of the track team. He was one of the top 10 pole vaulters in the state. He ran for president of his class. He won president of his class. His SAT scores were high. His GPA was off the charts. So he starts uh, applying to college. And you know what he starts getting back? Rejection letters. And I watch this kid. I'm sitting there going, man, I was eating at the nerd table in high school, and I would do anything to have had a high school career like yours, and he's sitting there dejected, feeling like a loser, right, that none of his dreams are coming through. Why? Because his expectation level for himself had gotten so high, right, that he, it's, he was, he was, when he was falling short, it was, instead of going, man, God, you have been so good, you have blessed me, look at this life I'm living, it's incredible what you've given me, God, instead he's going, man, God, you're never coming through for me. And the rest of us looked and said, this is, a, this is an incredible thing. So I said to him, I said, look, I, I, you would need to understand something. You're living an incredible life. Most people would love to the lead the high school life you're living. You're walking around depressed. You need to lower your expectations just a little bit. I said, for example, this was his senior year. My father's still mad at me because I told him this, right? Because my dad, he would tell he told me all the time, you could do anything you want. I can't. I can't hit a curveball. I've tried, right? So I said to him, I'm going to tell you something right now. You're not going to win the state wrestling championship. I know you're a senior, I know you're a wrestler, you're not going to win it. Get over it. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to have an awesome senior year of wrestling, you're going to do your very best, but let's be realistic. You haven't even made it to Atlantic City yet, you're probably not winning the state wrestling championship in one year. Oh, my father, how can you say that to this? And I said, because Dad, I want to set realistic expectations for him. Why is it when I go to the dump in Guatemala City and I walk around through people that live in garbage, they're the happiest people on the face of the earth? Because their expectations of what they're going to get out of life are set at a certain realistic level. Why is it when I come home to the richest place on the face of the earth that has ever existed, the number one prescribed medication is antidepressants? Right? Because our expectation level, everybody's told us, oh, you're gonna, you need to achieve, you need to have the perfect family, you need to have all this, and I can't meet these expectations, so I get depressed. So I do think there's something to setting right expectations. I think there's something right about that. But, this is a big but, this is a giant but, this would be like, I should have a big B-U-T behind me. But, think about this for a moment. If all we ever do is lower our expectations, if all you ever do is lower your expectations for your life, then when and where is greatness and wonder and discovery ever achieved? 
Expect mediocrity, says this theory, but the truth is that low expectations will affect your day-to-day life. By expecting mediocrity, you will find it everywhere. Don't aim to be satisfied by having low expectations. That's not satisfaction. That's weary resignation. Sure, you might avoid being disappointed, but your life itself, at the end of your life, will be a disappointment. Having low expectations doesn't bring happiness. At best, it just avoids some unhappiness. That's not good enough. So here's where I'm going with this. See, if all you ever do is ratchet down expectations in your life of what can be expected just so we can be happier, then maybe happiness is not the altar upon which we should be sacrificing so much. Now, this is a great story. Many of you know the story of Roger Banner. It's just a classic management thing that comes up everywhere. And I just refreshed myself on it this week, and it's just so true. Roger Bannister, I think we have a picture they're going to put up there. This is in 1954. Roger Bannister was, many of you know, the first man to ever run a sub-four-minute mile. Up until that time, it had been largely assumed that the feat was literally humanly impossible. It had been studied and researched so much that scientists and doctors had stated quite emphatically that it was physically impossible for a human being to put together four straight sub-60-second quarter miles. Have you ever tried, raise your hand if you tried to run a sub-60-second quarter mile, one. It's hard, really hard. And to string four of them together, in the 50s, scientists had essentially said, this can't be done, it is humanly impossible. In fact, they had actually said that if somebody were able to achieve it, the physical pressures and forces in their body would be so much that it would literally, if they were able to do it, they would die in their accomplishment. Now, the pursuit of the four-minute mile had been going on for years. But the world record had plateaued. In fact, nine years earlier, a guy named Gunder Hag had run 401, but that record had held for nine years. And so everybody just assumed the scientists, the physicists are right. You can't run a sub-four-minute mile. Look, the the record is plateaued. Nobody's ever going to be able to to accomplish this feat. It can't be done. It's impossible. Up until that day in 1954, when a very determined Roger Bannister ran 359.4. In fact, I love this quote. We have this quote from from, uh, Bannister about his accomplishment. He said, doctors and scientists said that breaking the four-minute mile was impossible, that one would die in the attempt. Thus, when I got up from the track after collapsing at the finish line, I figured I was dead. (laughs) That's a great story. That would be a great story on its own, right, of physical determination and all that. But that's not really the story. There's a bigger story and a better story, which is this. Nine years that record had stood. Nobody had touched four minutes because they had been told it was impossible. But then in May 54, Bannister does the impossible and a couple weeks later, an Australian guy named John Landy, who had been trying to accomplish the same feat for years, well, he runs 358. And then Bannister raised him a couple months later, and he ran 357. And then, then within, uh, within, what is it, within a couple of years, 24 people had run sub-four-minute miles. Within a decade, hundreds of people had run sub-four-minute miles. The record, world record for the, the mile today stands at 343. What changed? The power of expectation. When it was said to be impossible, it was impossible. When it became expected, it became possible. And that's the downside of living a life of low expectations. 
Now, if you're here this morning and, and, and you're not a church person and you're just checking things out, that's, you know, there's a good life thing there for you, right? Don't sacrifice your life on the altar of happiness by living this life of low expectations. But now I'm going to switch this to us, to our community, to this church. But if you're a mendicant person, let me take it a little bit further. It's one thing to live a life of low expectations for yourself, and that's a terrible waste of life. I mean, think about it, right? But how about when you live a, low, a life of low expectations for God? How would you feel? How would you feel if no one had any expectations for you at all? That's just Doug Collinson. Nothing's going to come to him. Right? That's just Marie. Oh, it's just Marie. How'd you feel? Hurt, maybe? What happens to the people of God when they start to have low expectations of their God? You see, God's not eating grapes this morning. God, this morning, is building his church. He's still fueling this incredible force. And he's asking us to join him in the force. The force rolls on, with or without us. And if we would join him in the force, your expectations for what God could do with you, with us, in this place, we got to raise the expectations. We forget this, so we give up so easy. We set the bar so low for what God might do. Oh, God, he's never going to do anything great here in Mendham or Chester. God's never going to use me. He's never going to use, you know, our church is never going to be this massive, powerful force for the kingdom. I'm never going to mention to my friend or to my neighbor just how much God has changed my life or what he's done in this church. I'm not going to open my mouth and invite anybody here because, you know, they're probably not interested. You know, God, you know, God's not going to really come through. Why would he use me? And, and so, you know, why don't we just come to church and kind of hunker down and, and, and have a mint? See, if you think this way, you're not alone. See, the church has been, what was George Bush's word, misunderestimating? Misunderestimating God for, for a long time. See, you remember Peter? Here's this Peter, and Jesus said to him, Peter, as crazy as you are, as impulsive as, impulsive as you are, as, as little as your faith is sometimes, I'm going to use you to build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Peter, I am building this church on you and with you. And so the book of Acts picks up where the story left off, and you probably see this um, in, in the show A.D. And, and so Peter winds up in jail. In fact, here's the story. Darren's going to put it up for you. It was about that time King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Stop. If you dedicate yourself to building the church, there will be people that get lost along the way. The building of the church of Jesus Christ does not come without sacrifice. Don't misunderstand that. James went to be with Jesus and celebrated the work of God. And the church continued to be built. Let's keep going. And so when he saw, when the King Herod saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he, he proceeded to seize Peter. This happened during the festival of unlimited bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded. This is how much Herod didn't want him to get, get, get away. To be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. And here's the church. 
Here is the church of Jesus Christ. The church is gathered and the church is this powerful weapon of prayer. And it says the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Oh God, free Peter. Oh God, set Peter free. Oh God, protect Peter. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone into the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. You can almost picture the look on Peter's face. The angel has to tell him, get up. Come on. He got up and the chains fell off his wrist. The angel said, put on your clothes and your sandals. Come on, come on. Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me, the angel told him. What, what, why, is, why is he need to instruct him? Why isn't he just jumping up and running out of the prison? Peter followed him out of the prison. He had no idea that uh, no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter's expectations for what God would really do through him to build his church, it gets better. They passed the first and the second guards and they came to the iron gates leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. Do you see how the gates of the city open when God's on his, doing his, his work, when he's building his kingdom? And they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, the angel left him. And Peter came to himself. He understands from all, oh, that's right. Jesus said he's going to build his church. Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and he's rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this dawned on him, oh, that's right. I forgot. God is still building his church. He actually said he was going to use me. When it dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. What were they praying for? Peter. Peter knocked at the outside entrance. A servant named Rhonda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and explained, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. I will build my church. Oh, God, please let Peter go. Please let Peter go. Please let Peter go. Peter's here. You're out of your mind. <laughs> What's your expectation level of God? What he'll do with you, through you, and building his kingdom. Why do you keep lowering the bar for God? In your life, and in this community, and in this place? But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. When's the last time you were astonished? For me, it was a Christmas Eve when people showed up with food unexpectedly. You build the kingdom of God. You join God in what God's doing. You'll be astonished. Peter, Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Mendham, to my friends out there that are with me in this work, it's time for us to raise the expectations around this place. You set low expectations, you achieve them. You shoot for mediocrity, that's what you get. Why do we keep lowering the bar for what God could do through us here? He will build his church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. We get so discouraged so easily. I don't want to invite anybody to church because I asked them one time and they didn't come. So, you know, I don't think anybody's in here. Nobody else is probably interested. He probably doesn't want me to ask him again. Man, we got to raise the expectations for what God is doing here in this place. You see, Jesus is building his church. That's what Jesus does. Dead men are still coming back to life and they're coming back to life through his church. See, when he left, he, made, he gave us marching orders. He said, go and make disciples. In all the earth. 
Yeah, we do a great job making disciples in all the earth. We do a great job in Guatemala. We do a great job in Pine Ridge. Heck, we do a great job sometimes in the, in the woods of Morris County. You know where we don't do a great job? On the streets of Morris County. If you were here last year, something that's kind of been resonant in my heart and the heart of the elders here and, and many of your hearts, because I've heard you quote it to me, is this concept of the 92,962. I can't get away from this concept. Um, what happened was one day I was just sitting there and I said, you know, I wonder how many people like, are around our church, like, are, are being impacted by our church. And, and so I started doing a little bit of work. I said, what? I'm going to take every town that touches our town. Not two towns away, not even Morristown, because Morris Township touches our town. So I didn't even take the big city. I took every town that either touches Mendham or Chester, because our church is right on the line, and I added up their population. Then I went to the um, George Barnes studies on uh, geographic church attendance and looked at what the ge geographic church attendance was in our area. And this is how many people that live within one town of our church that likely have little to no personal relationship with God. 92,962. Where are you going to set the bar for what God is going to do with them? If you set the bar at 2%, it would be 1,800 people. You see, we're going to start dreaming big dreams. Because they're, they're not our dreams. Who did Jesus say was going to build his church? He says, I'll build it. I'm going to build it on you. I'm going to build it with you. I'm going to build it through you. I, this is my work, though. I am going to do it. we got to raise our expectations for what's possible here. We have to be a people who start to see and understand what God is doing in and through and with us instead of so easily getting discouraged. See, we don't see this right. There's a great story in the Old Testament about a city and a misunderstanding of God's ability to do something with it. I love this because it says something so much about what we see when we look out at our neighborhoods. It comes from the book of 2 Kings. What happened was the, the prophet Elijah, um, the king of Syria, wanted to, wanted to come against and make war against the Israelites. But, the, but this prophet Elijah, he, he kept ruining the, the plans. And so this king of Syria decides, I'm going to go get Elijah. So he finds out where Elijah is. And this is where the story picks up. In 2 Kings, in 2 Kings, i got to find my thing here. Here we go. Um, so he finds out Elisha's in the city of Dotham, and the Bible says this. So he went there, this is the king of Syria, with horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and they surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early, the man of God here being Elijah, so this is Elijah's servant. When Elijah's servant kind of like us, the servants of the king. When the servant of the man rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots were all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what are we going to do? I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Expectation for what God would do to achieve it. What are we going to do? what Elisha says. He says, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Oh, that you would have eyes to see what God is up to in the world. What he's up to here, on your street, in your house. 
See, God's still doing what he's always been doing. He's asked you to join him. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this concept of expectations, of, of, of having right expectations of God and of ourselves and of each other. Tonight, we're going to get together. It's very important. I really, I really want you to be here tonight. But my prayer tonight is we get together and we talk about this. We're going to look at some really cool building plans, the kind of place where you, we could get 92,960 people where they're not running into each other in the foyer. The kind of place where, where they, they, would, they would see and say, my children need to go to that, to that place. Because space does matter. I think even, even the, the renovations we've done in this sanctuary in the last year would tell all of us that our space does matter. But that's not what this is about. This is about the force in the building. This, isn't about the, uh, this is about the church of Jesus Christ and what Jesus wants to do with you and I in this place. And it matters so much. Guys, get the band. Come on up. We're going to close for take. But the work that is going on in this place, it matters so much. Here's what, I'm, I, what I would say to you is, for many of us, this is true. And it's not just true of me because it was true of me before I became the pastor. The, your work, our work in this place, has the potential to be for you the work of your life. It's the work of your life. I know that you all have jobs. I know that you all have, have responsibilities. But what are you giving to yourself to that has more significance than this? This church could be, and I think for some of us should be, the work of our lives. It just matters so much. It just matters so much. If that little group hadn't sacrificed the way they did 30 years ago, John does a sit in the back and wind up up here. The work matters so much. The significant work of changing and saving lives here and into eternity, it matters so much. I, I don't know what I have to do to convince you of it. I can tell my own story. But yesterday, as I was writing this message, I got a text. It was from a, a young guy that used to go here. He's about 30 years old. He, he moved a year, a year and a half ago, um, South Jersey. And uh, he was here, and he, he just started coming to church. He hadn't come from a church background, and he started coming to church. And this, you ever meet the couple that, like, has it all together? You're like, this guy was a professional baseball player. He, uh, he was in the minor leagues, and he got hurt, and his wife was like a marathoner. And they both looked like they were, like, models. And, you know, they just had it all together. And this guy had a big-time now investment banking job on Wall Street, and he was taking a new job on Wall Street. We went out to lunch one day, and we were talking. I said, look, one thing I, I, I want to say to you is, be careful that you don't lose your soul. Then gain the whole world and lose your soul. And, and so we've kept in touch. And, you know, I talked to him a couple times a year, maybe by text or whatever. Yesterday, out of nowhere, he just sent me this text. When I, wo I woke up to it. He said, hey, John, I, I miss you, brother. I pray you guys are all doing well at Menham Hills. We pray for Menham Hills every so often. I just wanted to tell you that my heart has been completely transformed by Jesus Christ. I'm getting baptized on Sunday. My wife is now running the nursery at church. The boys are doing well. We're excited about number three coming in August. I enjoy seeing pictures of all you guys on Facebook. We'll visit again soon. By the way, I'll never forget you. I'm eternally grateful for that place. Nothing has the power of the church of Jesus Christ. And if you would give yourself to it, and if you would raise your expectations for what's possible in your life, through your life, in this place, God will meet us there, and he'll do incredible things. Let's celebrate together. We'll sing.